Hey, keto freaks. Do you know someone who desperately needs low-carb, high-fat therapy? I'm holding my first keto boot camp seven-day retreat in Las Vegas, Nevada on the second week of January 2017. Now, this isn't for everyone. It's for newcomers who need personal guidance through the first week of a keto lifestyle. I'm renting a beautiful house about 20 minutes from the Strip. It's got a big, beautiful kitchen, a nice pool, a hot tub, a massage chair, and plenty of room to spread out. We're going to cook together as we discuss the science behind the ketogenic way of life. We'll venture into the real world, restaurants and grocery stores, so you'll see exactly what you need to do to keep it going once you're back home. If you know someone who needs to save their own life, as Richard and I have done for ourselves, send them over to retreat.2keto.com. Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. This is Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States. And in February 2016, I put myself on a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. In just two and a half months, I managed to reverse all my markers of type 2 diabetes with diet alone. As of now, I'm about 70-ish pounds lighter, 74 today. Nice. <laughs> with no signs of diabetes or heart disease. Yeah, this is Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia, and I've been on a ketogenic diet for over two years. When I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. And within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. I've also lost about 70 pounds, and I've completely turned my health around. And this show is a document of my progress through ketosis and Richard's experience thriving for more than two and a half years in ketosis. Yeah. And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. Yeah, we're not doctors. We don't want to give anyone any medical advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. Yep. We're actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail, are we, Carl? Nah. So we've done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind them. We hope to share some of that research. And where possible, we intend to put links in the show notes to cite research supporting any claims that we make. Yep. You'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. Sure are. We love to cook and we love to eat. In every episode, we both share a keto recipe that cannot be ignored. <laughs> <laughs> So, let's start podcast episode number 35, The Ideal Bodyweight Show. Well, Richard, do we have any corrections or apologies from last week? Yeah, there was only one correction. I mentioned last week that I got a tweet from Nick Mailer suggesting that the amounts of aspartate that could have inhibited ketogenesis was ludicrously low. He was referring to aspartate available from eating aspartame, the artificial sweetener. Oh. So the jury is still out with regards to uh, the amount of aspartate you get from food. The amino acid aspartate. That's it, yeah. That's what I proposed during the protein controversy show uh, was stopping the production of ketones when you eat too much protein. Mm. So I'm doing an experiment. I've done half of that experiment at the end of my last five-day fast, mm -hmm. and I'll do the other half of that experiment at the end of my next five-day fast. But basically what I did was uh, at the end of my fast, I ate 200 grams of just egg white. Now, egg white's got something like 2% 
aspartic acid, aspartate in it. I went for a bike ride, 60-minute bike ride to raise my ketones, and this was after five days of fasting, and then I ate the uh, 200 grams of egg whites, and I tracked my ketones every 15 minutes, and there was a, there was a severe drop-off. So next time I, I fast, I'll do the same without eating egg white and just see what my body does when it doesn't eat anything. Uh, maybe I might try and find some some protein that doesn't have a lot of aspartate in, so as I can, yeah. you know, sort of, you know, um, uh, remove any possible confounding factors and sure. and see really whether you know eating food with aspartate in it does actually uh, cause a drop in in ketogenesis. And did you measure your ketones before you ate the egg whites? And after your bike ride? Yes, I, I measure them every 15 minutes for the entire duration. And I'm going to do the same wow. without eating or without eating egg whites at next time. And I'll do it. I, might, I wanted to do it after five days of fasting so that I removed any possible confounding lead in factors. Right. So I'll do the same thing again. And this one will be without uh, eating. So it's, I guess it's a control. F- for that, uh, for the first experiment, you didn't see any leveling off of ketones. Even you just saw a continuous drop. Yeah, I know. I saw a plummet it, as soon as uh, probably about um, forty-five to uh, sixty minutes after I ate the egg whites, my ketones just dropped off the face of the earth. So wow. it, it's going to be interesting to see. I'm going to do. I'm going to try and repeat the same experiment, and I, and I probably might do it again a, a third time. Uh, eating uh, egg whites again, and and just just to make sure that that I'm repeating the the, the same uh, conditions, and uh, I should have some meaningful data. Again, that's only meaningful for my body, for you know, but it'll be interesting. Yeah, and you do also have to remember what you know people like Ron Rosedale say, which is when you are measuring ketones in your blood. Even in your blood, mm. you're measuring what's not being used. That's you're measuring right. what is being secreted. Yeah. but not being taken up by the brain and other organs. Yeah. Well, see, that's why, that's why I did the exercise to basically uh, that drew down a little bit on my, on my, uh, on my glucose because red yeah. blood cells uh, as, uh, moving oxygen around, working a little bit harder, they eat a little bit yeah. more glucose. And, and that, that really did, it raised my ketone levels. As you say, it's the, the bit that you're not using. And then mm. when I, when I uh, had uh, egg whites in my 200 grams of egg whites, they, they definitely dropped off. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. They went somewhere. Where did they go? They were used. I used them. Well, that's, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. Know, my, my, rate of, my, my rate of production uh, was less than my rate of consumption. That's where they went. Right. That's all we know. We don't really know if you were producing less. Um, we, you might have been using more mm. or some combination. I'm not sure how to control for that, but we shall- um, Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> it, well, it's interesting anyway. It is interesting. So that's my errata for last week's show. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's uh, recap what a ketogenic diet is. A ketogenic sure. diet is any diet that puts you in a state of nutritional ketosis. And that happens when your insulin is low enough so that your liver can burn body fat. The byproduct of burning that body fat are ketones. Sure. Listen to the ketone show if you want more depth, but those ketones mm. are a wonderful source of fuel for your brain they sure and are. other cells. So the macronutrient ratios that we typically start with uh, are 20 grams or less of carbohydrates per day. That'll get just about everybody into ketosis because your body doesn't have a choice. It can't live on glucose because you're not giving it enough. Yep. So it, it has to burn fat and your brain needs you to, to, to make ketones. So it will do that. Yep. yep. As far as protein, that scales with how much lean body mass you have. Yep. And we, we use a moderate protein recommendation per Finney and Volex book 
the art and science of low-carbohydrate living, one to one and a half grams per kilogram of lean body mass. Mm -hmm. And the rest is fat. Yeah. Get all your energy from fat. Yeah. Whether it's the fat on your plate or that fat from that Krispy Kreme that you (laughs) ate a decade ago. Yes. I'm still (laughs) feasting out on that Krispy Kreme. (laughs) Yeah. As we should. So, Richard, how was your week? Yeah, it was good. I was watching a couple of the videos on uh, the Keto Summit, and I saw one from Ron Rosedale. And I've seen him talk before. He did. We, we mentioned him on the Protein Controversy Show. He did a great talk at uh, Low Carb Vale last year. Mm. And mm. Uh, w- a bunch of us are all going to Low Carb Breckenridge, which is the yeah. You know, 2017 version of that. So hopefully we'll get to meet him. Yep. So I, I watched his Keto Summit presentation about protein levels. Mm-hmm. And so I did a little bit of research to see what the Australian nutrient reference values were for protein for a 51 to 70-year-old man. I'm, I just turned 51, so I'm just in that category. And uh, the nutrient reference values in Australia are very similar to the US RDI recommended daily intake. And this is a minimum. This is a minimum, yeah. And so the okay. minimum for uh, for Australia for an Australian fifty one year old who is doing moderate exercise, which most of my exercise is moderate, some of it's insane, but yeah. <laughs> um, okay. but some most of it's moderate. So um, uh, is zero point six eight grams per kilogram of lean body mass. That's low, which is very low. The the level that I've been on for two and a half years has been between one and one point five. Yeah. And a lot of people say if you're having a plateau, try lowering your protein. Mm. Um, and, and of course, others say try lowering your fat and it, it's a matter of working out what works for you. Yeah. But I thought I might do an experiment. So every three months, I get a blood test as part of my normal doctor visit. So yeah. um, what I decided to do is this time I would get a DEXA scan at at the same time I get a blood test. Now, a DEXA scan is a, an X-ray that uh, does a cross-section across your body and works out how much of your body is lean muscle, how much of it is body fat, and it gives you a precise number for your lean body mass. Hmm. And it also gives you a precise number for how much, what percentage of body fat you have. Hmm. And this will be in about a month and a half's time. I'll have established my baseline of how much body lean body mass I have, and then I will eat consistently for three months, the Australian nutrient reference values. So the minimum value of protein that That's it. Australia recommends for life. Uh, for, an adult, uh, for an adult male at 51 years of age. Um, for what it's worth, uh, for a female, it's 0.60, so it's even less. Hmm. So, but for a male, it's 0.68. And I'll put a link in the show notes to the uh, documentation for that. Okay. So, so what I propose to do is take, have a DEXA scan, eat uh, 0.68 uh, grams per kilogram of lean body mass for three months and yep. then get a second DEXA scan. So I'm getting I'm getting a bookended DEXA scan either side of this so I can see precisely how much lean body mass I've lost. It, it will also tell me how much I need to make up on the other side. So I'll probably mm. get a third DEXA scan six months hence and then I'll um, hopefully have gotten back to any lean body mass that I've lost. I love it. But I'm curious to find out precisely how much I lose if I follow the Australian standards. If you lose any at all, you may not. I may not. And yeah. I, I propose to – I know exactly how much exercise I'm doing because mm-hmm. I track that. And so I'm going to be able to maintain my exercise rate consistently 
the same exercise rate that I've had almost for the past year, I'll be continuing for the next six months during the at least the three months of the experiment. Wow. Um, it's going to be an experiment in, in low protein to see to see exactly what the effects are of following the Australian standards. For I love it. Richard Morris taking one for the team. <laughs> <laughs> we shall see. So yeah. uh, anyway, so that's that's my week. I've, I've come up with this cunning plan <laughs> and uh, we'll see how it goes. Good. So how was your week, Carl? I had a really good week, Richard. Um, after the protein controversy show, mm. and I, I started going and watching some more videos. Uh, Ron Rosedale is an advocate of even lower protein for people like us, which means overweight, extra body fat. Obviously, we were type 2 diabetic. We don't yeah. have blood sugar in that range anymore, but we have this deranged metabolism that we talk about. Mm. Um, for weightlifters and for thin people, it's going to be different. Even the experts seem to agree on that. But after this show, I started cutting down the amount of protein that I ate and uh, it had a dramatic effect. Yeah. What was that? Well, at least the first day that I did it, I had a whoosh. Yeah. You know what that is. But all that it's, all that water weight whooshes out of you. <laughs> yeah. Water weight or something. I mean, it was just a rapid weight loss and it was basically four pounds in one day. And wow. What I, and I sat on my butt and worked all day. Mm. I started with coconut oil coffee, keto coffee, mm -hmm. and maybe even three tablespoons in three cups, you know, a tablespoon per cup. Wow. And uh, yeah, it was a lot. And mm. then I, 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 man, let me tell you something. I have perfected the keto chocolate mousse. Okay. And here's how. And, and we'll post the recipe link again because mm. it's so good. But instead of mixing the xylitol crystals uh, in the mousse, I put a little heavy cream in a Pyrex with the xylitol crystals, stir it up, put it in the microwave for 30 seconds, stir it up, another 30 seconds, stir it up until they're all dissolved. Doesn't that split the cream a bit? Yeah, it splits the cream. Right. But I don't want to use water, right? No, of course. I, ha yeah. I have to use a fat fat source. Yeah, it does sure. split the cream, but I only use enough cream to to melt the xylitol, you know what I mean? Just a little oh, bit to get it so wet. So not all the cream that you're going to use in the recipe. It's just, no, no, it's no, just no, like no. a small amount just to get the xylitol out of crystal form, yeah. Exactly. Maybe a couple of tablespoons. Sure. You know? And so then I put that in the fridge for a little bit to just cool down because I don't want it hot going into my whipped cream. Oh, no. And then uh, I, I whip the cream and I, I use a, a pint of cream wow. and maybe quarter to a half cup of xylitol, depending on how sweet I want it. Mm. Yeah. And, and when I'm whipping cream for the mousse, I don't whip it all the way like I, I would with regular whipped cream because it's going to thicken up when you add the cocoa powder. Mm. So I just whip it until it starts to get a little viscous. And then I add a heaping help in the cocoa powder. And you do this to taste <laughs> uh, because right. some people like it more char. I like Hershey's special dark cocoa powder mm -hmm. personally. Okay. And I use a lot of it. It's very dark, you know, <gasps> it's a dark brown. Yeah. And then I mix in some vanilla. I mix in the sweetener and I also put in salt and salt is really, really good with chocolate. So just a pinch? No, Not no. Is. Like a, I'm- Oh, you put a fair bit? I'm talking a half a teaspoon. Oh, wow. Yeah. It makes it salty, sweet, chocolatey. You ever had salted caramel? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the flavor. You get that oh, okay. really, really good chocolate. It brings out the chocolate flavor. Yeah. By the way, if you take a hand blender after dumping all that cocoa powder on your whipped cream and bring it up to full speed, you're going to get a snoot full of cocoa powder. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, you are. Yeah, you have to mix it by <laughs> mix hand. Mix it with a spoon first. Yeah, Mix yeah. it with a spoon first. <laughs> and then I make a bunch of whipped cream, you know, and bring it to Soft Peaks just right. as you normally would do with the same technique of melting the, uh, dissolving the xylitol. And, and if you want to use Swerve or Splendor, whatever you're using, uh, you know, that's up to you. But I use xylitol, right? Yeah. So then I put both of these in the fridge and let them get happy for an hour or so. <laughs> and let me tell you, I could live on this stuff. I, uh. I was eating it all day. I was eating it all day. And, and for protein, all I had was a couple of slices of prosciutto. Right. And I also had... Uh, my recipe this week, which is going to be a garlic mushroom brie spread. Nice. That I make myself from real brie. All right. So leave me alone, French people. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm a do you heretic. Cut the cr- but do you cut the crusts off, though? I do. I do. Oh, I, I'm no. not a rind guy. I know. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. You hate me. Go ahead. People, I don't care. No, no, I don't. I, there are some people who <laughs> rind people. I, I used to not be. Um, I used to yeah. cut mine off, but I just got used to it. <laughs> yeah, and that's fine. And in my recipe, I'll, I'll make a mention of that, that if you are a rind person, you want to add some of that in there, go right ahead. I'm not going to stop you. What do I know? So anyway, the, the result was four pounds lost. And Wow. I, I just couldn't believe how full and satisfied I was eating chocolate mousse and full fat triple cream brie spread on cheese crisps and a couple of slices of prosciutto. And that's all I had. And and man, uh, I felt so great. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's incredible, really, isn't it? Yep. So that was my week. I lowered my protein and at least for a couple of days uh, so far, uh, it's been working for me. Mm. Um before we go any further, we want to talk a little bit to our Facebook forum users. Yeah. In a, in a format that uh, we can we we can be effective. We uh, I, I'm not going to say we have problems, but we have I, I would say we have normal growing pains of any large group. We've got a large group of people, and it's only getting larger. I think we've almost got five thousand um, um, people in the. We've got in over five thousand. We have fifty two hundred. Yeah. 5,200. Wow. So 200 in the past couple of days. So yeah, it's it's really growing in leaps and bounds. And the problem is, of course, Facebook wasn't really designed for that kind of thing. And so yeah. messages pass through very quickly. Um, and you really can't search that effectively in a Facebook forum. So, But we have noticed a trend. Mm, and we have. we've noticed a trend that uh, it's very difficult for people to understand the intent behind other people's messages. Mm. Sometimes uh, people take what would normally be a constructive tip uh, as a personal slam yeah. and uh, get offended. And then, you know, why are you yelling at me? I'm not yelling at you in mm. all caps. And uh, and then it ends up with somebody leaving the group. Yeah. And so it's we have these miscommunications that just happen over and over again. And, you know, it's going to happen, but we want to limit that as much as we possibly can. And I I don't know how to say it, except just be, be nice. Yeah. And, and, and recognize that other people may not be giving you a personal slam. Um, Just the best thing to do is just try to engage people in conversations about the science rather than, you know, um, the, the passioned plea to do this, to do not 
to not do that, yeah. um, that kind of thing. A good example might be fasting. Everybody fasts in different ways. Some people have to eat fat during a fast, and mm. some people like to only accept the biblical term of fast. Mm. Um, some people only accept the dictionary term, and, and, and there are arguments breaking out that if somebody is uh, in a fat fast because they don't have a lot of body fat to keep their metabolic rate up, uh, that they aren't really fasting. Well, they are. They they are engaging autophagy and they're having an insulin holiday and they're mm. getting two of the biggest advantages of a water fast without the big disadvantage of your metabolic right. slowdown if you don't have sufficient body fat. So um, that's an example. You know, people are people are leaving the forum, leaving the group. Um, upset because they were called out for not really doing a fast. And unfortunately, somebody leaving the group might be somebody who um, misses out on following through with a ketogenic diet and saving their life. So, you know, this is, this is, you know, be, be, just be a little bit more excellent to each other. Yeah, that's right. I mean, everyone that, leaves the group is potentially somebody who could get frustrated and, and go back to, uh, to, to something that would be much worse than the, you know, the little, uh, what you see as a little transgression. <laughs> and, uh, and the fact is we're all human beings. We all screw up. Richard and I screw up and we freely admit when we do. We certainly do. And, uh, the, yeah, the idea is that we want to be as supportive as possible and that means if somebody comes into the group asking a question that you've answered for the nth time, you know, you don't uh, tell them to read the FAQ, <laughs> shut up and read the fact. Don't don't ask such a dumb question. Um, there are no such things as dumb questions. And yeah, the right answer is uh, it's all explained here and give them a link. And the answer to that is usually thank you very much. OK, well, that's 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 our moralizing for the day, I think. Yeah, yeah. Just we're, we're going to try to be nicer. We are, and thank you to all of the awesome people in our group. Uh, we have thousands of wonderful people in that group. They do most of the work. Uh, all Carl and I do is just pop in every now and then to make sure that everything's going. All Carl and I do is pop in every now and then to make sure things are humming along. So. Yeah, and our admins are wonderful. Our admins are always on the lookout for bots and spammers and uh, you know that kind of thing, and they're they're there to help, and they do a great job. So uh, hats off to our administrators. Uh, we couldn't do it without them. It's just getting so big. We do want to also uh, state our intention to create a forum. We do. A forum is a place different than um, Facebook where, where knowledge seems to just recirculate. And uh, if it's not on the first 20 messages that you see, you're going to ask a question. It's very difficult to sort of curate that knowledge. Yeah. Whereas in a forum, you know, you can go into uh, a topic that's already been asked and the answer has been given and you can find the most popular answer that's voted on and all of that stuff. So it's much easier for you to do research um, searching through a forum than it is asking a question on Facebook. And you're more apt to get a better answer. Yeah. So I guess so, we're saying that we're, we will eventually outgrow Facebook and we're making yep. plans for that. Yep. And with that, it's time for... Mail! I love this bit. It's my favorite bit of the week. <laughs> Mail! Mail! Mail. Yeah, we've got a mail from Lily on our Facebook group. Mm -hmm. And Lily says, I'm down close to 70 pounds since January of 2016. Well done, Lily. Yes. I think we're 
that's a very common story. Just about everybody loses an immediate 70 pounds <laughs> in the first six months or so. Yeah. Uh, some some fast and some slow, but yep. uh, yeah. So uh, Lily uh, goes on. She says, Carl inspired me to do some moving slash exercise. I decided to take a walk around my neighborhood. Dreading it because the last time I walked around my neighborhood, I was in a world of pain. I barely made it to the end of the block and back, and, well, that was about 70 pounds ago, so I decided mm. maybe it's time to try. Hmm. So I walked I walked around the block one Monday. It was easy. No pain. Yeah. I walked around the block twice on Tuesday. Yeah. Three times on Wednesday. Awesome. And on Thursday, four times. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. No pain, not gasping for breath. I felt like a kid when you get a new toy and you just want to play with it, <laughs> except I am the toy. <laughs> I can't. I keep wanting to walk around the block to see if I can still do it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was a freak of nature. I know. I, I kind of feel like that way about my lake, about cycling around my lake. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so Lily says, in all serious, I'm just going to the mailbox last year. It was painful. I am so very grateful that I can do this. I feel light. I still have 50 pounds or more to lose, but I feel so much better. I wouldn't trade this feeling for anything in the world. Yeah. Someone who has never been heavy probably would not understand the joy of being able to comfortably walk, but it's something I do not take for granted. Yeah. Many of the wrong people in this world are rich. They have lots of money, uh, but are short on character. Carl Frankel and Richard Morris should be very rich men for all they've done to help <laughs> others. <laughs> Thanks, Lily. We're, uh, we're, we're enjoying this. Mm. We are. We really are. So um, uh, Lily says, you've done more for me in the last four months than any medical people have ever done for me. Sincerely, thank you from the bottom of my healthier heart. Uh, may God bless you both tenfold for all that you do. Wow. Thank you very much, Lily. What an inspiring story. What an inspiring story. And the really good thing about our Facebook group is that all of our people who do this for themselves turn around and help other people. That's and right. It's, it's becoming a very powerful place. Yeah. And uh, we can't really take credit for what your body has done for no. you. <laughs> no. Uh, you did that, Lily. You, uh, did. you decided to what to eat and what not to eat. And, um, you know, we, we pointed you to the science, but, uh, and we could take credit for that, but certainly we didn't invent this way of eating and, uh, it's been around for millions of years. It has. We just, we just told you what worked for us and we're just really grateful that it worked for you too. Yep. Well done. Uh, Karen, and, uh, this is our friend, Karen Mangicotti, married to mm -hmm. Mark Miller, who was on the cancer show. And she's definitely going to be on this show soon. Uh, she's got, <laughs> Great stories. But she said, and I thought this was appropriate to our show today, mm. putting this out there because some others may be feeling the same, even if they don't realize it. I miss my fat. Mm. Hmm. I was cushiony and soft, <laughs> and I was more cuddly and less cold. I like taking up space and feeling powerful. Now I feel more scrawny and weaker, which is a total illusion. I'm stronger now. Yeah. I know this is the mind's resistance to change, and I love the way my mind and body feel, but these are real feelings too. Sure. And I wonder if some may sabotage themselves because they have these feelings they may never acknowledge. Mm. A wow, that's amazingly honest, isn't it? It is. Yeah. A journey to healthy is not always, hooray, there are losses as well as gains. We can lose friends who resent our journey, and we mm. lose some fat that has kept us safe and warm. There are gains as well, and I'm embracing them and powering on like a effing keto warrior, but <laughs> also this. Yes, also that. I think the a sign of wisdom is being able to 
hold contradictions in your mind without freaking out. Yeah. You know, yeah. and this is one of those contradictions. It's like one of those uh, paradoxes, mm. you know, that you just have to be okay with. It's, yeah. it's a paradox. I feel, I feel stronger, but I also felt, um, I felt stronger when I was a big man and had momentum, <laughs> you could say. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah I, I, I definitely hear what she's saying. And I've felt some of the same feelings myself. And I think it, I think she's right. It is important to acknowledge the fact that uh, there are some things about being fat that maybe we did like and maybe we need to acknowledge that. You know, it is sort of a, a barrier, a psychological barrier that you have and a physical barrier to being honest with yourself and other people. Um, mm. You know, it is. It was sort of a defense mechanism at, at some point. I mean, you can say that after the fact. I don't think anybody uh, sets out in the morning to say, you know, I'm really feeling defensive today. <laughs> today. I think I'll be fat. I think no. I'll eat some more. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't happen that That's way. That's not how that works. <laughs> yeah, but you can see people's resistance to losing it might be because... Oh, now I've got to put it all out there and uh, I don't have anything shielding me before. But yeah, but physically, I've noticed I stub my toes more now. And I think I figured out why. Because you can see I'm, them. <laughs> well, yeah, sort of. I'm used to having more space between me and a table. Oh, yes. <laughs> and so my feet never approached the foot of the table. Whereas yeah. now I'm closer yeah. and whack. And I'm stubbing my toes all the time. Oh, yeah. I'm just not used to being that close to things that I could stub my toes on. Yeah, I I have a theory that as we lose weight, our moments of force all change and so our brain has to reprogram. So yeah. some, of the, some of the opportunity for the brain to reconstitute the body but not necessarily lose weight um, may, may have maybe due to in part to the brain just not wanting to reprogram. So it says, well, we'll add some muscle um, and uh, – because we get we need less body fat and we'll just keep the weight about stable. Because you know I went through eighteen months of, uh, of, of gaining and losing the same five pounds, yeah. and, at the, and in that time I went from a waist size uh, between it was like forty six to forty eight inch waist size to mm. a thirty four to thirty six inch waist size. So yeah. that's a significant difference in that time. And yet my weight didn't really change a lot in that time. So yeah, yeah. Um, I do have a suspicion that that might be involved. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the final one is from Latonia, and she also left a message on Facebook forum, and she said, I'm a little discouraged. I'm mm. considering another diet. I've seen amazing weight loss with a keto lifestyle, so I would like to stick with it, but the weight just isn't coming off me. Mm. I started on August the 24th, so that's uh, about a month and a half ago, mm -hmm. um, and I lost five pounds the first week. This week, the scale is going back and forth between one and a half pounds, I understand the five pounds isn't bad, but typically I lose more since I'm larger. I'm tracking in my fitness pal and I'm walking at least 30 minutes five days a week and I've increased my water intake and I I welcome all suggestions. Please help. Well, I can start um, just by saying you're not alone. If you listen to the female no. show that Brenda and Kim did, Brenda Zorn and Kim Howerton, mm. they highlighted this issue that women sort of lose weight on keto differently or at a different pattern, or that tend to 
um, not lose a lot of weight at first while the hormones are readjusting and all of this. Yeah. Um, they think this is why it is. Mm. And then uh, all of a sudden it happens. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. It's definitely that there is a, a, a stage after your initial water weight loss that uh, your body needs to readjust and everybody's mm. going to react differently there. I'm going to link in the show notes a link to my blog post about my first year of low-carb, uh, high-fat eating. And it mm. includes a chart of my weight loss over that first year. And you can see in the first week, I lost a lot of weight. I went from 136 kilograms down to 128 kilograms. So it was a massive loss. Yeah, huge. Yeah, and then I then I kind of had a retracement. On week three, I actually gained weight. And I was yep. a bit disappointed at that time. I thought, you know, that's, there's something going wrong here. Um, and I was, I was quite frustrated as well. Um, I guess it's important to know that that first weight loss that you lose, it, it's like an accounting change from a system that burns glucose to a system that burns fat. Yeah. What, what we're doing is we're essentially jettisoning a small tank of glucose that we use when we're glucose burners because we don't need it. And that, that, has maybe five to ten pounds of, of weight, and it most of that weight is actually stored as water. That that um, glucose is stored in a hydrated form. Glycogen. Yeah, glycogen. So you pee it out, and that happened to Latonia. So that actually shows that what she's doing is correct. Yes, she has gotten to the point of uh, losing her water weight. She switched over from burning glucose. Now she's forcing her body to become good at burning fat, and that. That next phase that she's going through, uh, her body has to become good at burning fat because she's giving it no choice. It's getting no glucose, so it has to become good at burning fat. But it's going to complain, it's going to drag its feet, and it can take some people up to eight weeks. Um, and as you can see, my third week, I actually put weight on, and I almost gave up. And I'm glad they didn't because all of a sudden, I started losing maybe two kilograms every week for about 15 weeks yeah. in a row. And so, you know, that was a... Once I was off to the races, I just lost weight consistently, yep. which was now, and that's really it's all important to know. Also, that's really how guys who are very diabetic lose weight. Yeah, uh, women lose weight at different rates. Yeah, look at Karen Mangiacotti. Yeah, she gained weight for the first six weeks. That's right, and then she started losing it. And I, I chalked this up to the fact that women are smarter and more complex than men. I think their bodies <laughs> okay. have to do more. Yeah. Obviously, they have extra parts that we don't have and uh, they have extra hormone regulation that we don't have to deal with. Yeah. And it, it, I think it just takes longer for those things to correct themselves. Yeah. Uh, and that's pretty much a, an observation that we've seen across the board with women on keto. And again, Brenda and Kim talk about this at length in the yeah. female show. My partner, Julie, lost uh, very little for the first two months. And then after that, she consistently lost about a pound a week for almost 18 months. Uh, yeah. And then she plateaued. And, and of course, I lost everything in the first five months or so, and I was losing at a much faster rate. So we're all, mm -hmm. we're all different. But the reason that we, we start losing weight is because when we become good at using fat for energy, you start burning fat for energy whether you are eating or not and at that point you yeah. never get hungry and eating becomes optional and then if you eat less because you aren't as hungry you lose weight so it's it's, it's kind of simple <laughs> very good 
Today's episode of Two Keto Dudes is brought to you by our friends at Keto Delivered. Each month, Keto Delivered sends you a care package full of new and delicious keto foodstuffs and recipes. Fresh, balanced, and responsibly sourced, low-carb, high-fat ingredients delivered right to your door every month. And you can support our podcast by signing up at the URL delivery.2keto.com. That's delivery.com the number two, keto.com. So how much body fat is enough? How much is too much? Is it safe to be overweight? Is being overweight by itself a marker of any kind of disease? Well, the experts actually say yes, because they see a correlation between diabetes and obesity. Yeah. My understanding, and this came into sharp focus also after watching Ron Rosedale's talk, mm. is that the body evolved to get us to reproduction age and through where we could pass on our genes. And after that, it really doesn't care about us. Right. <laughs> so, it doesn't, yeah. That post-reproductive post, post health is an entirely different thing to, um, to adolescent health, yeah. Absolutely. So, so you know, tweaking these things becomes important. But, but it, if you think about body fat, insulin makes you store blood sugar energy in the form of body fat because yep. it's safer there. That's it. And it stores it as saturated fat. That's right. Palmitic acid and oleic acid. So, saturated monounsaturated saturated fat. Yeah, so. so the reason that obesity and diabetes go together is because your body is trying to prevent you from becoming diabetic by putting on fat. And when doctors inject you with insulin or you inject yourself with insulin, you're essentially going to gain weight from all the sugar that's in your bloodstream. That's because you're medicating a, a symptom. Yeah. You're, you're, you're trying, it's, a, it's a symptomatic treatment. Uh, taking insulin, if you are a type 2 diabetic, which is somebody who produces too much insulin and their body gradually becomes uh, immune to it or at least uh, ignores the, sig the signal, um, Injecting insulin is simply going to treat the symptom. It's not treating the underlying right. Uh, cause. Right. You still have diabetes. So, and we know how to reverse type 2 diabetes. We've both done it. We have. Yeah. We know tons and tons of people who have done the same. Yeah. Hundreds of people in our forums have put up their hand and said, I, I started this process six months ago. I had diabetes. I, it's now not uh, diagnosable from my blood test. Right. And based on your blood work, my blood work, your coronary calcium scan that came back zero, my carotid artery scan that came back negative, yeah. we know we're healthy. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. We're healthy. We're still overweight. Right. I still hope one day to get under 100 kilograms. That would be interesting. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm, I'm curious. But at this point, I, I can actually do some remarkable things with my body. Yeah, me too. Um, I, you know, I can fast for seven days and then go out for a 100K bike ride. Mm. And that's 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 a remarkable level of uh, performance that I'm expecting from my body, and right. it just does it. It just yeah. does it so efficiently, and I can fast, and my metabolic rate does almost doesn't have to drop because I have you know all that capacity, all that body fat that's right. sitting there. It's a stored energy for me. So and Lily, Lily said the same thing. You know, she was yeah. almost afraid to go walking because mm. she remembers what the pain was like, and it surprised her how her body was responding to performance. Yeah. And me too. I went for I went for a couple of rides on my three-wheeler yeah. and I couldn't believe how I was taking hills in gear, not right. in the lowest gear which I would do before. I would do I yeah. get in a very low gear and just sort of, 
and I'd have to stop and catch my breath. I was yeah. in higher gears and just going up a yeah. hill and loving it, yeah. loving it. Yeah. What's up with that? And I'm overweight. So we yeah. clearly know from our experiences that you can be both overweight and healthy at the same time. Yeah. It's just that overweight and diabetes, metabolic syndrome, seem to correlate with each other because one almost prevents the other until you reach the tipping point and then, uh, you know, there's no coming back from it unless yeah. you cut your carbohydrates. I think it's post hoc reasoning, post hoc ergo, ergo propter hoc, after therefore because of reasoning. You know, mm. It's observed that people become overweight and then become diabetic and it's assumed that because it's always in that order that becoming overweight causes diabetes. And so yeah. we've associated obesity or at least being overweight um, with being diseased. People who are overweight eventually get heart disease. People who are overweight eventually get diabetes. And so it's assumed that there is a causal relationship there. Yeah. But in fact, it, it could actually be a third factor That's that right. causes both being overweight and get, becoming diabetic or, or getting heart disease. And it could be that the amount of time it takes to become overweight or become diabetic is slightly different, and that's why one happens before the other. There's been a great example on, I believe it was uh, TED Radio Hour, or one of these podcasts on NPR. I'm an NPR podcast junkie, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a great example of this, which somebody found a correlation between uh, ice cream consumption and drownings. Wow. Yeah, and drownings either in pools or at the ocean. And when ice cream consumption went up, Drownings went up. Is that because of summer? <laughs> That's it. Yeah. The, you know, you think to yourself, well, if we just got rid of all the ice cream, we people wouldn't drown. I mean, can you imagine being right. able to draw that correlation and actually yeah. thinking they're related? But that's what epidemiologists do. <laughs> right, exactly. But people go swimming in the summer, so there's naturally going to be more drownings, yeah. and they eat ice cream in the summer. They don't eat ice cream in the winter. Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And the other one that we talked about in the cholesterol show is, you know, we've noticed that whenever somebody's house burns down, there seem to be a lot of firefighters at the scene. We should so, ban firefighters. <laughs> that's right. And then that won't, there won't be any more fires. There can be yeah. and probably is a third factor that you're not accounting for. That's why yeah. correlation does not equal causation. But I'll tell you what, it works the other way around. Yeah. Non-correlation means non-causation. So if you can't find a correlation, you can't find a cause. They're not related, yes. So that's definitely true. So I guess the thing is, once you disassociate obesity with all of the diseases it normally travels with, like diabetes and heart disease, if if, if we assume, and we, I think we've pretty much got the facts that, uh, that define uh, heart disease as being insulin-related, at least there's a fairly good um, case for that being made. Right. And uh, insulin resistance or insulin resistance causing high insulin causing heart disease, insulin resistance causing high insulin causing uh, diabetes, uh, yeah. insulin would appear to be the, the root cause. Well, if you can lower your insulin enough to fix your glucose management or if you can use a dietary strategy like a ketogenic diet which which reduces high levels of glucose coming in so you don't end up having 
the high amount of insulin, the, having the high yeah. the high excursions of glucose, yeah. and therefore you reduce all of those diseases that that travel with it. Is obesity therefore, if it's disassociated from the diseases that it travels with, is obesity a bad thing? It is not inherently dangerous in and of itself. As a result of a bad metabolism, right. it points to the bad metabolism, which yeah. is the which is the difficult thing to deal with. But the obesity itself may or may not be dangerous. Yeah, that's true. So, um, I mean, one study uh, done in Denmark, which only came out in it was published in JAMA this year in May of 2016. Nice. And the study, and we'll link it in the show notes. And the study uh, refers to a change in body mass index associated with the lowest mortality in Denmark. Oh. And this study was conducted between 76 and 2013. And what they did was they they tracked 120,000 people. Uh, every 10 years, they'd go in and they'd basically work out how many people have died of heart attacks or or cause mortality, how many people have died from various things, mm. and they track their BMI. This is the body mass index. And it's it's we've spoken about BMI before. It's kind of remedial math for doctors, but it it what it does do is it kind of attempts to uh, work out a rough number for how obese you are. It tries to do what the DEXA scan does without actually doing the direct measurement. That's right. And it's notoriously bad. I mean, uh, a good example is somebody who is is quite large and muscular and has been weight training all their life uh, and has been a former rugby player and likes to ride up mountains, like myself, actually carries a lot more muscle than somebody who has never done any ex exercise all their life. Mm. But we will still have... We will still be regarded at the same level of obesity if we have the same height and same weight. Right. So, you know, that's that's a that's a good example of uh, of, uh, of of where BMI is wrong. But the interesting thing about this study was that they looked at the BMI of people who succumb to various illnesses, right. uh, mortal Ill illnesses. So, what did they find? Well, they found that. Uh, over the years of the analysis from 1976 to 2013, that the BMI that was associated with the lowest risk of death in 1976 was 23.7. So uh, that's right in the ideal range. The ideal range is between 20 and 25. Overweight is between 25 and 30. Obese 1 is between 30 and 35. Obese 2 is 35 to 40. Uh, obese 3 and then super obese. I started out... My ketogenic diet, I was super obese. So that was uh, in a range above 45. All right. Can you unpack that for us? What does that mean? It means that the people who were right in the middle of the ideal weight range in, in 1976 had the lowest risk of death. Hmm. So, and that, that, that makes sense from a common sense point of view. So you would think that in 2013, when they went back to the same population, that the people who were in that 23.7 BMI would still have the lowest risk of death. And in fact, they found quite surprisingly that the people who had the lowest risk of death had a BMI in the, in the range of 27, which is, which is overweight. Huh. So people who were overweight, certainly Danes in this study, but let's just genericize and say people who are overweight live longer than people who have ideal body weight. Interesting. I'll just let that sink in. And it is a correlation. It's not a causation, right? That's right. We don't know why. Yeah. We don't know why. It, it could be that the entire population's BMIs are slightly increasing, but the risks are not related to 
body weight. Right. Could be one. Could be one example. Wow, that's fascinating. Yes, it, it is. So I guess this means that in the past 40 years that the weight category associated with the longest lifespan has gone from normal to squarely in the overweight camp, which suggests hmm. that either our classification for normal weight is wrong or that the link between our weight and our overall health is far more complicated than we thought. Uh, I think it's number two, but you know, it could also <laughs> be number one. They could be both. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So what about fasting? I mean, when we talk about, you know, ratios and macros, we're talking about it from the point of view of guys like us. We're, we're overweight. Yeah. We have metabolic syndrome. You know, we're mm -hmm. not working out. We're not building, you know, pumping iron all the time. Um, what does it mean for people like us who fast? So we know from the discussion during the protein controversy show that we have a transaction rate that we can withdraw energy from our bank balance of body fat. Yeah. And that turns out to be 30.5 kilocalories per day for each pound of body fat. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, you might have a million dollars in your in your bank account, but you have an ATM transaction limit of $5,000 a day. Yeah. So it's kind of like that. I mean, you could you can say, okay, if I let's say I have 100 pounds of body fat on me, in theory, I can use 100 times, I guess the figure is about uh, 3,500 uh, kilocalories per pound is the mm -hmm. rough figure that people use. So I can, in theory, use a third of a million kilocalories of, uh, of body weight, but I can't use all of that in the first day. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it, it turns out I can only use 30.5 30 kilocalories per pound. Um, and it, it, it's, I guess it's roughly one one hundredth of your, of each pound of body fat can be taken out in a day. So it would take you 100 days to, to, to draw through all of your body fat if you're able to consume that number of calories every day. Okay. So for somebody who doesn't have body fat, fasting is going to be a problem. And I think Jason Fung said this on when we interviewed him. Yeah. He says it's, it's about 7% is about where you start getting into the danger zone. If you have 7% body fat, he thinks anyway. Yeah. So I think that the math actually shows that it's quite a lot higher than that because I know people in the the fifteen to twenty range who 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 just cannot uh, draw enough energy from their metabolism to not slow their body. Huh. So let's say you spend two thousand kilocalories a day; that's your daily rate, and then you do something to your body that forces you to only have access to fifteen hundred kilocalories. Mm. Your body has to make up that difference of five hundred. It basically has to go into a budgetary crisis yeah. where it has to say, "Okay, there are some things that we cannot afford to do. Like we cannot afford to. What are we going to cut? We can't, we can't afford. Yeah, exactly. We can't afford can't afford the heating bills. Yeah. So we're going to have to. And that's one of the reasons why people who people who don't have a lot of body fat who who try to fast that's one of the reasons why they feel cold all the time because their yeah. metabolic rate is slowing down. Yeah. And one of the problems with slowing down your metabolic rate is that there is a starvation response that the body goes into when it can't find enough easy things to cut, uh, it starts to drastically cut more important things and, and, and you end up with long-term symptoms from that. And we had some examples of, uh, of people on one of the other groups, not our group, but uh, were talking about... Uh, a uh, problem with intermittent fasting over long periods of time yeah. had a similar result to eating disorders, um, yeah. provoking a starvation response and what have you. And as Jason Fung says, when this happens, your body will not just go directly to your bones and your protein and your muscles and stuff, but there are other things that it can recycle 
yeah. uh, and get get calories from like skin, you know, like unused uh, white blood cells, collagen, like, uh, collagen, yeah, lipoproteins lipo that it no longer needs for shuffling fat around your body. These are all available, and your yeah. body can your body uses these proteins for. Uh, for energy, when you don't give it enough energy, you, you don't have enough body fat to be able to produce kilocalories of energy at the rate that your body wants to use them. Your body can choose to burn proteins for, for energy. And as we've discussed before, that's a very wasteful way of getting energy. So perhaps a little body fat means more metabolic flexibility. I think so. I think, and I think we can pretty much. Uh, we can pretty much rule a line under that because uh, I can fast for days and days and days and then exercise at what would have been extreme levels for me at least. Yeah. Um, I would say I would say cycling for for four hours at twenty five kilometers an hour is 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 a fairly serious draw of energy, and my body yeah. just provides that i have a slight metabolic slowdown because even even the amount of body fat that i have i cannot produce it at that uh, at the rate that i'm drawing on it mm. but um i i can do remarkable things yeah. uh, because i had that metabolic flexibility and we have friends and my partner julie and uh, one of our friends nanette have both said that they themselves cannot water fast unless they have a small amount of fat dietary fat to help supplement that process. And I think that's the, that's the critical thing, that if you are trying a fast and you feel cold and you feel awful because your metabolic rate has slowed down, try a little butter, a small amount, maybe a teaspoon of butter, yep. and see how it goes and see if that provides an extra energy source to supplement the, the meager amount of energy that you can get from your body fat and maybe that just puts you over the limit and you can now run your metabolic rate at full speed. You're still drawing down body fat. Yep. Just because you have a teaspoon of butter doesn't mean that you've stopped um, getting body fat, yeah. uh, energy from body fat. But I think that's the I think that's the critical thing. So I guess I guess I guess I'd sum up all of this by saying that that uh, having an ideal body weight, being in that twenty to twenty five uh, BMI category, or having a uh, body fat percentage in the 10% range may not be all it's cracked up to be. You may not live longer. You may not live as well. You may not be able to perform as well. And mm. there are some things that you might want to do, like you might want to fast for autophagy and for all of the other benefits. And you may have to to, to supplement a little bit to be able to do that as well as somebody who is normally overweight. Very good. Well, we want to know what you think. Sure so definitely there's a lot of ways to get in touch with us and uh, join the conversation. We'll talk about that at the end of the show. But first, we got some recipes. Recipes. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go first today. Go for it. Go for it. All right. As I said before, one of the things that I eat when I'm trying to lower my protein, I need to increase my fat intake. Mm -hmm. I love brie. I love mushroom brie. I used to get this at my local cheese shop. It's a bit expensive. And I thought to myself, you know what? I can do that. I can make some of that. So here's what I do. Uh, I take about two cups of mushrooms and I get baby Bella mushrooms, but you can use whatever mushrooms you want, sure. whatever. It doesn't matter. And I saute that in a few tablespoons of olive oil, little salt, um, three or four cloves of crushed garlic, some a few twists of black pepper, maybe eight to 10 twists of black pepper mm. and a little onion powder. 
because I love the flavor of onions, but I don't want all the carbs of sweet caramelized onions. Sure. So saute all that up for 10, 15 minutes or however long uh, you think they need. And then I throw those in a food processor. Now, if you don't have a food processor, you can use a blender. If you don't have a blender, just get a cutting board and a knife and whack away. Get vigorous. <laughs> get vigorous. Take out your aggressions. Right. All right. <laughs> Damn mushrooms. Okay. Then what I do, as we said earlier, I'm a wuss when it comes to rind. I don't like it. So I take it off of the brie. I take a whole triple cream brie and I cut it up into thin, narrow slices, maybe four or five narrow slices, then cut it in half. So I have these pieces that I can easily deal with and hold in my hand without slipping, cutting myself. So then I just take a paring knife and pare off the, uh, off the rind. Um, I, I was tempted to chuck all of this in the food processor and just whiz it up. However, I think it would probably gum up my food processor because brie is pretty yeah. sticky, you know? Pretty sticky, yeah. Yeah. So what I did is I just put it all in a bowl with the chopped mushrooms and just mixed it all up. And it took some effort, right? I had to start with a knife and then go to a big spoon and just keep mashing and mashing and mashing. But when you're done... Man, let me tell you, take some of those Asiago cheese crisps I told you about mm. on an earlier show. Yeah. Spread some of that on there. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's so <laughs> good. It's that umami flavors, that protein flavors. Umami up the wazoo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I had some more people over for a keto pizza night, which I've been doing in my town. Okay. Uh, and to turn people on to the ketogenic diet. Yeah, well, we have to do this prior to Keto Fest because we want to turn the whole town of New London, Connecticut, keto. So we're right. going person by person and uh, introducing them right. to the diet. Yeah, Exactly. And a lot of my friends locally are interested and curious. And uh, uh, so a big shout out to Mark and Lou and Karen who came to dinner the other night. And the first thing I had was the cheese crisps and that's this brie. Mm. And it was like, oh, I'll try some of that. Oh, that is so good. <laughs> it's like, yeah. It is. Welcome to my world, peeps. <laughs> and we made a we made a couple of uh, shrimp scampi pizzas. Mm. Well, we made one and then I made an Italian uh Carl's head pizza, which is fathead pizza without the egg essentially yeah. on yeah. a pizza stone. And uh you know, Lou said after eating his second slice of pizza he said you know this is remarkable i can't finish this yeah i'm full and this yeah. is only my second slice yeah so anyone who's interested in doing this and holding a sort of uh, a dinner party for your friends um a small group of friends this is the perfect thing to make because it's so filling you know what you could do next time is get everybody to write on a piece of paper and keep it secret how many slices of pizza they think they could eat before the meal before you talk about what the pizza is going to be so and, wow. and and they can all they can all write down i mean for me i would have had two large pizzas just by myself you know i could eat a large pizza before keto yeah. easy yeah. a large i have eaten a large pizza by myself right so i would say 10 12 slices of pizza i could eat without a problem yeah. The Carl's Head pizza, it's it's really Two. one and a half, seriously. Yeah. I'm 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 pushing to get that last second that second slice of pizza in. Yeah, it's amazing. So and then of course we did the uh, uh chocolate mousse and whipped cream for dessert and and I I, I sold them. Yeah. It's just like this is amazing. If I can eat like this every day, I'd be a happy man. Wow. Uh happy woman. <laughs> so that's my recipe, Richard. What do you got? 
Yeah, so I've got the meal that we ate tonight, which is a yakiniku pork belly soup. Whoa, I love pork belly, yeah, man. Yeah, well, What's yakiniku? Yakiniku is Japanese for grilled meat. Huh. And we saw this uh, pork belly sliced very finely across the grain mm. in Costco. And there was like, you know, it, they were selling two kilos of the stuff. <laughs> so this, <laughs> this is going to be like eight, eight or nine, maybe ten meals. Wow. It's basically it's it's bacon thickness, like a thickness of a thick piece of bacon, and mm. it's it's the bacon cut, yeah. but it's of course it's not being cured, so it's just you know, the pork belly. Right. Yeah. So we start off with two hundred grams of the pork belly, but we didn't cut, cook that immediately. We cooked that at the last minute. The first thing we want to do is we want to make the soup. Yeah. So we start off with three cups of homemade pork or ham stock soup. Nice. And I'm going to reduce that to about a cup and a half. So it's reducing from three cups to, to a cup and a half. So you get it on a simmer in a large pot and we, I put the fan on. The, the trick is if you put the fan on, it draws away the steam so that the uh, pot has enough capacity to make more steam. And let me tell you something. Cooking down a soup or a sauce and, and reducing it is the secret to flavor, kids. I know. This is what made Bobby Flay so famous. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I, so I've got this pot on the back burner and on the front burner, I have a fry pan and I put a little bit of butter in there and I, I make, I'm making two meals, two, two bowls here. So I'm, okay. I cut up about 50 grams of enoki mushrooms. These are uh, long, thin Japanese mushrooms mm-hmm. and I'm basically, I just cut the tops off and put them aside because I'm going to put them at the end just to make the dish look nice. Okay. And uh, so I, I chop up all of the rest of the mushrooms and I saute that in butter. And then I add two cloves of garlic and I add about a teaspoon of root ginger grated and I add a little bit of sesame oil. I'm rendering down all of those ingredients. And then what I did was I added those to the Soup. Yeah. So that then is continuing to reduce. I now have a pan that has some flavorings of sesame oil, ginger, garlic, and enoki <laughs> mushrooms. Yeah. And now what I'm going to do is I'm going to put my 200 grams of pork belly, yeah. sliced pork belly in that. And of course, it's so fatty that the fat all renders out or mm. not entirely renders out. You end up with that collagen matrix that the fat used yeah. to live in with bits of fat still in it. And it it's crackling, basically. So do you cook it in so, the fry pan or do you put it under a broiler or how do you do that? Yeah, I cook it in the fry pan and it renders out some fat. So I'm ending up with about a centimeter of uh, of uh, fat in there, but I'm not going to let that go to waste. I'm not going to toss that away because I'm going to put that in my belly. So <laughs> once <laughs> once the um, once the pork belly slices have cooked and they're nice and brown, I take them out and put them aside and they're going to go on to the meal at the last minute. Now, I have the bowl at the back with the soup that is rendered down and is delicious. And I, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to take some mandolin daikon root. Now, you know that I did uh, daikon root as uh, noodles the other day, a recipe for noodles. Yeah. Well, it's exactly that. I'm just taking daikon, noodled daikon using a, a mandolin. And I'm going to toss that daikon, raw daikon, into a julienne daikon into that pan full of hot pork fat. Mm. And it's going to soak it up and it's going to go slightly brown and it's absolutely delicious. It retains the crispness of the radish, but then it has this awesome fatty (laughs) pork flavor to it. Now, do you prefer daikon over shirataki noodles? Yes. And the reason I prefer daikon is because it retains the to the tooth 
The al dente. Yeah, the al dente texture. Whereas the, the shirataki noodles are slimy. They're a little bit like a like a, a, a South Asian noodle, like a, yeah. a pad thai or you yep. know similar rice noodle. Yeah. Um, the the daikons are almost they're almost like perfectly cooked pasta, perfectly cooked spaghetti. Wow. It's got the, you know as your tooth goes through it, it, it just starts to give. So yeah. so how I how I plate is I start off with a bowl. Put the stock in the bowl. I then put a swirl of the daikon on top of that, and then sitting on top of that daikon, I have my uh, pork belly, and then I just I sprinkle the anaki over the top. I have pictures of this on our blog, and uh, I will um, put the link to that in the show notes. Richard, I'm coming over for dinner. Give me two days to get yeah, there. Yeah, I got like te- I got like ten days worth <laughs> of supplies. So, all right. <laughs> Awesome. Well, uh, of course, if you have anything you want to tell us, something we said wrong, something you don't agree with, or some more research you found to support or refute what we've said, send it by email to dudes at twoketodudes.com or post it on our website at twoketodudes.com. Yeah, and you can follow us on Twitter at twoketodudes or Instagram at twoketodudes. And of course, if you want to join our Facebook community, uh, go to fb.twoketo.com. Yep. And if you're looking for a concise description of the ketogenic diet in a nutshell, you can go to booklet.2keto.com. Yeah. This is something that Richard and I wrote for uh, for getting together with people. And uh, it's a great first introduction to it. It's not too long to read, 12 or 13 pages, and it covers a lot of things in depth. You can also find our recipe archive at recipes.2keto.com. And you can read our FAQ at FAQ.2keto.com. That's the show, buddy. That was wonderful. (laughs) It's a good one. Keep calm and keto on, my friend. Keep calm and keto on, Carl. All right. We'll see you next time on Two Two Keto Keto Dudes. Dudes.